experiences in seminary for, for many seminary students is preaching class. And the way that goes, typically, is uh, you prepare a sermon for your class, and at some point, usually towards the end of the semester, you preach it to your professor and your peers. So you stand up in front of your classmates, often a lot of your friends, and you, you preach a sermon, and you sit there when the sermon is over, and everybody critiques it together. At least that was my experience. And since most of the, the guys in preaching class are kind of getting started uh, learning how to preach, most of the comments end up being about things that the preacher needs to do better. So, um, you know, they might say, like, don't say, um, so much. Or, uh, you know, you can't just stand there and read your notes like this while you're preaching. You need to look at people every now and then. Or, or maybe don't just stand here like this, kind of frozen behind the pulpit. It, maybe it's helpful to move around a little bit. Or, or move your hands a little bit. Don't just stand here like this while you're preaching. Or uh, make eye contact. Or vary your voice a little bit. So there's, it's not so monotonous as you're preaching. All sorts of, of things like that. And you just sit there as a student, as everybody in the class, including the professor, tell you all the things that you need to do better as a preacher. Now, all of this is hard. It would be hard anyways. But it's especially hard when it's a sermon, because when you preach a sermon, you've prepared for it and hopefully prayed over it. And you've, by the time you're, you're ready to stand up and preach it, you kind of like what you've put together, and you hope that it's going to help people, and to stand up and have everybody criticize what you just did. Uh, one of my professors said, it's, it's kind of like getting paid to tell a mom her baby is ugly. You just kind of are there criticizing the sermon, and, and, and that's the sermon review. That was a, a typical thing in many seminaries and still is today. Today, we're going to do a sermon review, um, not of my sermon, or if you want to, you can tell me afterwards, or we won't, we won't do it all together. Um, we're not going to critique the preacher of this sermon, but we are going to review, kind of get a big picture view of this sermon so that we can better understand it and better apply this sermon to our lives. So if you're not already there, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And if you haven't already figured it out yet, the, the, the preacher whose sermon we're reviewing this morning is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Now, if you've been following along with us in Matthew's gospel so far, you know that Jesus has been baptized. He's been tempted in the wilderness. He's begun his teaching ministry in northern Israel around the Sea of Galilee and we, we watched last week as uh, he's called four of his disciples at least, probably more by the time we get to Matthew 5. He's been healing people throughout the region, people that are paralyzed, people that are having seizures, people that are demon-possessed, and more. He's healing them. Everybody's coming, even from outside of Israel in Syria. They're coming to see this Jesus. And then in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Jesus begins to teach or preach a sermon. And that sermon is arguably the most famous sermon ever preached. It's sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. And it, it covers Matthew chapter 
chapters 5, 6, and 7. So if we've been going at a, at a reasonable pace so far through Matthew's gospel, prepare to slow down a little bit so we can try to take in the beauty and the glory of this incredible sermon. But what we're going to do this morning is look at the verses at the beginning and at the end of the sermon, and our hope is to, rather than zooming in, which we hope to begin next week, to kind of take a bird's eye view and see what big picture sorts of lessons we can learn from this sermon as, as a whole. And so what I want to do with God's help this morning is I want to show you five components of the greatest sermon ever preached, and I want to just walk through them together. And let's start with the location, the location of this sermon. Uh, if you were with us a few weeks ago, um, we talked about how Jesus' story is a new story that connects to an old story and completes it. You might have remembered, unless you tried to block out the memory, you might have remembered that I compared it to Star Wars. And if you remember The Force Awakens, when it came out, it was this new film, and it was wildly popular. And one of the reasons why it was so is because it was connected to an older series of films. And if you knew the Star Wars universe, you actually got way more out of The Force Awakens when you watched it. Well, Matthew kind of does the same thing. Sometimes he, he explicitly tells you exactly how Jesus' story is connected to the old story of God's covenant dealings with his people, Israel. But sometimes he just kind of alludes to it. He hints at it. It's kind of like an Easter egg in a movie trailer. He just kind of hints at something. And if, if you know the Old Testament and you know that story, you see the connection. Well, I think we have a little bit of that in the first verse of Matthew chapter 5. Look at, look at it with me. Seeing the crowd, the crowds rather, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, why does Matthew tell us that Jesus preached this sermon on a mountain? Well, the simple answer is that Jesus did preach it on a mountain. So Matthew's recording to us what happened, right? That's the simple answer, and that's true. And we're not exactly sure where in Galilee Jesus preached this sermon, but for at least 1,600 years, many Christians have taken this site to be the place. And you can see it on your screen. It's called the Mount of Beatitudes or Mount Eremos. And when I was visiting on this location uh, a couple of years ago, one of the interesting things I learned was that there have been all, all sorts of studies done on that spot to demonstrate that you could actually, if you're situated in the right spot, you could preach a sermon in a normal voice and thousands of people gathered around could hear you. And so for at least 1,600 years, Christians, many Christians, have taken this to be the spot where Jesus preached this sermon. Don't know for sure, but perhaps. But I think there's another reason why Matthew highlights this location. There's another reason why Matthew says Jesus went up on the mountain. Um, perhaps you've already realized as you read through the Gospels, the Gospel writers don't mention every single detail. 
Even if you compare the four Gospels, you'll sometimes notice Luke might mention something that Matthew doesn't, or, or Mark might mention something that John doesn't. They don't record every single detail. So why would Matthew hint at this? Why would he think that is significant? I think because he's alluding to something in the Old Testament story. Over a thousand years earlier, God's people gathered to hear another preacher on a mountain. Like Jesus, when this preacher was a baby, he was forced in hiding to save his life from a bloodthirsty king. Like Jesus, this preacher found refuge in Egypt. Like Jesus, this preacher eventually left Egypt, went through the water, and then into the wilderness. But unlike Jesus, this preacher would not pass the test in the wilderness. So God promised that one day another preacher would come. And that preacher, the old preacher, Moses, said this to God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Pause for just a second. Moses is giving us all the reason we need to listen to the Sermon on the Mount. You better listen to this prophet that's coming, Moses says. So by, by preaching on a mountain, Matthew is hinting that this sermon is a new and better law given from a new and better Moses. Listen to the way Keith and Christian Getty put it in one of their songs. Christ the true and better Moses called to lead a people home, standing bold to earthly powers, God's great glory to be known. With his arms stretched wide to heaven, see the waters part in two. See the veil is torn forever, cleansed with blood, we now pass through. Now, what is it about the law that Christ lays down on this mountain that makes it better than the law that Moses laid down. What is it that makes this better? Jesus, in his work, eventual death and resurrection and sending of the Spirit, will not just give us words to obey, but the power to obey. That's what's different. So one poet wrote, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. So, the location. Jesus preaches on a mountain, I think, to give us a glimpse that what's coming is a new and better law from a new and better Moses. Number two, Number two, let's consider the audience, the audience of this sermon. Now, uh, I've talked with some of you um, who have watched the, the TV series called The Chosen, and our family has been watching that together, and there's a lot in that uh, TV show that we have been encouraged by and, and thought was largely helpful. Um, 
But of course, we have to test everything by the scriptures, right? There's no show, there's no movie, there's, there's no book that is above that. Everything has to be tested by the scriptures. And there was one particular episode that, that I was actually disappointed by. It was the final episode of season two, uh, as Jesus is about to preach this sermon. And one of the things depicted in that episode is Jesus trying to get his words just right so that the crowd can follow along with him. And he really wants to bless the crowd. And so he's trying to get his words just right to preach this sermon. But if you look carefully at the text, we're told that Jesus' primary audience isn't the crowds at all. Look at, with me again at verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he, being Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, who's the them referring to? It's referring to the disciples. So Jesus' primary audience is the disciples, not the crowd. And if you want a, you know, kind of extra evidence of that, just look, scroll ahead in your Bibles or turn the page to verse 14. Verse 14, Jesus says, you are, chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, so it is believers who are called to let our light shine, not everybody, okay? Now, now again, don't, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that there's nothing in this sermon for the crowds. We'll see that as we go along. But Jesus' primary audience is his disciples. At the end of the sermon, just go down to chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. At the end, it's clear that the crowds are listening in. Look at chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So the crowds are listening in, but again, they're not the primary audience. Perhaps it would help to think about Jesus' sermon much like we would think about most sermons preached in most churches on most Sundays, and, and at least here in the West. In most churches throughout our country, on a Sunday morning, you're going to have the primary audience which are the believers gathered together. That's who the sermon is primarily for. And yet, there will be others, right? Friends, family members, neighbors, folks that just feel drawn to come to the church, and they're not believers. Is there something in the sermon for them too? Hopefully, hopefully they're being invited to trust in this Jesus. But the sermon's primary audience is the gathered saints, Right? That's what's happening in this sermon. So here's the question I want you to ask, just to bring this home for just a moment. Are you like the disciples or like the crowd? Are you like the disciples or are you like the crowd? If you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, like the disciples, then this message, this sermon, is meant to show you what kingdom living looks like. This is given to show you what it looks like to follow 
Jesus. Think back to the law that was given from Moses on Mount Sinai. When was it given to the people? Before or after they were rescued from Egypt? After, right? They're they're rescued, they're delivered, and then God says to his people, here's how I want you to live. Rescued people live differently. So too, Christian, with you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have taken up this call that we heard last week to repent, to, to follow Jesus. Then this is showing you what it looks like to follow him. This is what a Christian looks like. If you're like the crowd This sermon shows you how much you need Jesus because you cannot live like this without the help of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. Consider with me a third component of this sermon. We've looked at the location and the audience. Uh, Let's look at the theme of the sermon. The theme of the sermon. Have um, Have you ever heard a sermon or a preacher that just seemed like he was all over the place. I want to ask you how recently you heard a preacher like that. (laughs) A sermon, you know, where the preacher seems like he's trying to talk about everything, but ends up kind of talking about nothing at the same time, right? Um, Years ago, this is a true story. Not that my other stories aren't true, but I'm just just emphasizing this this really happened. Again, the other ones did too. Anyways, um, years ago, uh, very first ministry position, I was a youth pastor in Tupelo, Mississippi. Tiny little church there, great people, love the Lord. But I remember the pastor uh, standing up there one Sunday, Pastor Smith, and Pastor Smith preached, I think, like an 11 or 12-point sermon on joy. And one of his points, no lie, one of his points, and this was in his outline in the bulletin, you know, was smile at a baby. And that, I, don't, I still don't know where he put that, where he got that from scripture, but that was one of the steps to joy, just smile at a baby. Now, moms of young babies, you know that doesn't lead to joy, right? The baby's still crying, right? It doesn't fix everything. But uh, that was the kind of sermon, or you've heard sermons like that, where it seems like the preacher's everywhere. And you're, at some point, you're listening to the sermon, and you're wondering, what in the world is this guy even talking about? Maybe you're thinking that right now. Don't answer that. So in sermon class, in seminary, one of the things we were taught is every sermon needs to be about one thing. What's the big idea of the sermon? And then you just kind of explain the implications of that big idea. So what's the big idea, the main point, if you will, of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? If you just kind of go through it, I mean, listen to the topics he talks about. He talks about murder, lust, divorce, lying, loving your enemies, giving, praying, fasting, anxiety, judging, and more. So does Jesus even have a big idea? Is Jesus kind of an all-over-the-place sort of preacher? No. Jesus' sermon has a main point, and all those things are topics that are are fleshing out that main point practically. The main point, if you want the big idea of the Sermon on the Mount, here it is, kingdom righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount is about kingdom righteousness. Let me show this to you. It's about righteousness. 
So if you go to Matthew 5, go down to verse 6. There, there are three blesseds that begin the Beatitudes. And then verse 6, the text says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Three more blesseds follow. And then verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for what? Righteousness' sake. After talking about how he's not going to abolish the law, Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. By the way, those hearing that would have been shocked by that statement. The most righteous people they knew were Pharisees and scribes. And Jesus says, the righteousness that they have is not righteous enough. Something defective about it. So he's talking about righteousness. He, he demonstrates that the, that the point of the Old Testament law is not mere outward conformity, but, but heart obedience. So murder begins in the heart. Adultery be, begins in the heart. And then chapter 5, verse 48, he kind of summarizes it, and he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We need righteousness. And then Jesus wants us to know as well, it's not enough to merely look good, look righteous on the outside. That's what the Pharisees did. We need righteousness of the heart. So in chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And then he goes on to show us how true righteousness changes how we fast, how we give, how we pray, and so on. Well, this is a sermon about righteousness. It's also a sermon about the kingdom. Go back to chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20 of chapter 5. I've already read this one, but he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the religious people, you'll never enter where? The kingdom of heaven. Chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. Chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter what? The kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is teaching his followers how to live rightly as representatives of the kingdom. This is a sermon about kingdom living, about kingdom righteousness. You remember last week we talked about the kingdom that is inaugurated by Jesus. If you repent and believe, you become a part of the kingdom of God. You're submitting to the kingdom of God. And now your job until Jesus returns and restores the kingdom your job is to be an ambassador. You live here as an ambassador of that kingdom amongst the kingdoms of this world. Jesus is showing us this is what it looks like to be my ambassador. This is what a Christian looks like. This is what it looks like to live in this world as a citizen of the next. It's a sermon about kingdom righteousness. If you go to chapter 6, verse 33, we see both ideas there simultaneously. 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So we're living in this world that's broken. We're living in a world with sin. We're living in a world with suffering. This, this world is filled with sin. We, we hurt people. We get hurt by people. We lie. We steal. We get stolen from. We get lied to. We, we see sin every time we turn on the news. We live in a world with sin. We live in a world with suffering. We live in a world where earthquakes destroy buildings and pandemics take lives. We live in a world where people get cancer. We live in a world with tsunamis and tornadoes. We live in a world where animals will attack human beings and kill them. We live in a world of sin and suffering. So how are we supposed to live as kingdom citizens while we live in this world of sin and suffering? By seeking his kingdom first and living rightly now. And that's what this sermon is all about. The theme of this sermon is kingdom righteousness. How do you live in this world as a follower of Jesus? Let's move on. Number four. Number four. Consider with me the response. The response. Uh, listen, uh, you've probably heard me say this before, but every time, every time you hear God's word taught or preached, God is requiring a response from you. God speaks, we respond. Every single time. Every single time we hear God's word preached or taught, our hearts are either becoming softer to the things of God or harder to the things of God. Every single time. So God speaks to us through his word. Our job is to respond to it. Sometimes it's believing what he says is actually true. Sometimes there's a command that we're called to obey. Sometimes there's a sin that we're called to confess. But every time when God speaks to us in his word, we must respond. And that is certainly true here in the sermon of Jesus. People have not always agreed on how we should respond to this sermon. And studying over the past few weeks, I learned that there's as many as 12 different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount and how we apply it. We're going to just talk about four of the most common interpretations. So how do we respond to this sermon? What does this look like for you on Monday morning or on Thursday night? How do we apply this? Four main interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. The first is that this sermon is a blueprint for utopia. A blueprint for utopia. The idea goes like this. If we can just follow these instructions and treat each other like this, then we can bring heaven on earth. We can bring kind of a utopia here and now. This is the, the viewpoint of theological liberalism. Go, go in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. Let me just show this to you, 38 and 39. This is Jesus' teaching on how we treat our enemies. And listen to what he says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other 
also. So, so the idea is if we can just learn to love one another like Jesus teaches, just loving each other, right? Be kind to one another. If we can just do that, we can make this world a better place. Now, that might be true, but it's kind of like saying, if we can just figure out how to grow money on trees, we can solve poverty. Well, what's the problem? We can't do that. What's the problem with viewing this as a blueprint for utopia? We can't, apart from the Spirit of Christ, we can't love each other like that. This is not, these are not, again, Jesus' instructions for the crowds, but for his disciples that are now followers of Jesus. Everybody can't do this. So this interpretation doesn't work. A second one is that here we have a roadmap for salvation. A roadmap for salvation. So some see this sermon as a blueprint not for reorganizing society, but for individual salvation. So if you want to be a Christian, here's what you have to do. Obey the Sermon on the Mount, and then you can be a Christian. So let me give you an example of this. Go to chapter 7, verse 21. Chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, in what may be for you a, a very troubling verse, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So the idea goes like this. If you want to go to heaven, stop lusting. Stop it. If you want to go to heaven, love your enemies. Stop hating people in your heart. Stop calling people fools or other names when you, they cut you off on the highway. Pray the right prayers. Don't judge other people. Live like this and you get salvation, okay? Trying to earn your salvation by working for it never works. We know that, right? As followers of Jesus, we know that. You cannot work for this. You cannot be good enough to save yourself. I've shared this here before. It's kind of like trying to build a bridge to the moon, Right? If you just decide, I'm going to build a bridge to the moon, and you start building your bridge, and you look around, and your bridge is twice as high as the other guy's bridge, and you start to boast about how high your bridge is. But guess what? You're trying to build it to the moon. Now, the longest bridge in the world is 100 miles long. You know how far away the moon is? 240,000 miles. You can confirm with the NASA guys if I'm right. The moon will not be reached by a bridge, and you will not reach heaven by trying to work your way there. So this is, this is where the gospel is such good news to us. The gospel tells us that God created this world and everything in it, and he's a holy God, and he is rightly angry because we have rebelled against him in our sin, and yet he loves this world so much, he sent his son to obey all of this and die as if he disobeyed all of it. Three days later, rise from the dead so that whoever trusts in him Trust in the work of Jesus, not your work. Trust in what he did, not what you will do. You can have eternal life. Now, 
If you go back to chapter 7, verse 21, we need to wrestle with what Jesus is saying. Jesus is, he is saying, listen, brother, sister, friend, listen to this. He is saying that you will not enter the kingdom if you will not obey the Father. You won't. But that obedience is, is not the root of your salvation. It's the fruit of your salvation. You obey because God has saved you, not in order for God to save you. Another interpretation of this, pair, of this uh, sermon is that it's kind of like a mirror to expose sin. If you, know, if, you, if you hold up a mirror to your face, you might notice a little piece of lettuce or spinach in your teeth or something like that, right? And a mirror is good for exposing what's, what's there that's wrong, but it's not good for fixing it. So you wouldn't take the mirror and use it to pick your teeth, right? You use it to see what's wrong, and then I'm going to use something else to fix it. Well, well, the argument goes that that's kind of how the sermon functions. It shows you how wrong you are, and how bad you are, and how sinful you are, and how much you need Jesus, and your job then is to run to Jesus. This is not at all about you obeying this, but seeing how disobedient you are, and how much you need Jesus. This is a popular interpretation among Lutherans, although I would argue not Martin Luther himself. If you, want, if you want information about that, I've got a long book you can read, but that's another story. Now, in one sense, that is right. It is right that this sermon does sometimes function like a mirror to expose your sin. It shows you your sin. So, for example, chapter 5, 21 and 22. Jesus says, you guys think murder is just killing somebody. Here's what I say to you. If you hate them, if you call them a fool, you have already broken the commandment. Jesus says, you think adultery... It's just the physical act. And I say to you, no, it begins in your heart. So yes, this sermon does sometimes function like a mirror, and it shows you, look, look how bad you are. You're a lot worse than you thought. But that's not all it does. And therein lies the problem. That's not all it does. So for example, go to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. We know this passage. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So if you were teaching a Bible study on the Lord's prayer, how would you apply it? Would you read that and then say, man, none of us pray like that. Isn't it good that Jesus prayed like that in our place? Or would you say, we should actually try to pray like that? That's what Jesus wants us to do. Look at the text. He says, pray like this. So yes, this sermon sometimes exposes your sin like a mirror, but it also sometimes tells you how Jesus wants you to live. And that's the final interpretation. This is the interpretation we're going to take as we walk through this sermon together. It is a manifesto for kingdom living. In other words, this is telling you how Christians are supposed to live. Will we do it perfectly? No. But this is 
what we're, how we are called to live. John Stott wrote a helpful book on the Sermon on the Mount, and he, he argues that the key to understanding the entire sermon is found in a simple phrase in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, where it says, do not be like them. That's the key, according to Stott, to understanding the entire sermon. This sermon is about how Christians are supposed to look differently as citizens of the kingdom. You, Christian, are not supposed to look the same as the world around you. Listen to what John Stott writes. There is no single paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount in which this contrast between Christian and non-Christian standards is not drawn. It's the underlying and uniting theme of the sermon. Everything else is a variation of it. Sometimes it's the Gentiles or pagan nations with whom Jesus contrasts his followers. At other times, Jesus contrasts his disciples not with Gentiles, but with Jews. So the followers of Jesus are to be different, different from both the nominal church and the secular world, different from both the religious and the irreligious, end quote. We are called to live differently, and this sermon shows us how. It's a manifesto for kingdom living. So simply put, this sermon, Jesus shows us what a Christian looks like. Christians follow a different hap- a pathway for happiness. Christians use our influence for different purposes than the world does. Christians have different standards for righteousness. Christians treat our enemies differently. Christians give differently. Christians pray differently. Christians view our possessions differently. Christians judge differently. We seek after different things. We live for different kingdoms. And we do all of this because our lives are built on different foundations. That's what this sermon is all about. So let me ask a question, brother, sister, friend. What difference has Jesus made in your life? What difference has Jesus made in your life? If you're in this room and you profess to be a follower of Jesus, but there is no zero difference in your life, then I would ask you to ask yourself, do I know him? I don't say it to scare anybody, but to remind ourselves that we can be deceived. So go with me to chapter 7, verses 19 and 20, the two verses before the scary verse in verse 21. Every tree, Jesus says, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Is there fruit of conversion in your life, Christian? Is there evidence of how your life has changed as a follower of Jesus? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you claim to be a Christian, let me, let me assure you for just a moment, we're not talking about perfection. 
We're talking about the direction of your heart, the direction of your life. If this is troubling to you and you're hearing this and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, here's the first practical thing I would ask you to do. Sit down with a brother or sister that loves Jesus and knows you and ask them, do you see fruit in my life? I'm struggling here. I'm doubting this. Help me. Because a lot of times it's hard to see the fruit yourself. This is why we need each other. This is why we need the church. We need the community of faith because the doubting Christian often needs his brothers and sisters to stand up and hold up his arms, hold up her arms. So if you hear that and you're struggling, don't just stay there in your struggles. Find a brother, find a sister who loves you and sit down with them and say, do you see evidence in my life? And I think most of the time, God's people will say yes, You're asking me this question. That's a good start. You probably wouldn't care. But if you're in this room and you think you can call yourself a Christian and never actually follow him, you're wrong. You're wrong. I want to conclude our sermon review by examining the preacher. The preacher. Not long ago... um, on some Sunday, I don't remember what I said, but I made you all laugh a few times. I don't know what it was. Uh, but the kids, we sit down with our kids every lunch um, at the house, and we talk about the day. We talk about what did you learn in Sunday school? Uh, what was something you liked in the worship service? Um, and that particular Sunday where I made you laugh, um, my kids kept going on and on about how I thought I was cool standing up here on the stage. And I was like, Dad, you just, you think you're too cool for school. You're just standing up there and making people laugh and trying to be funny. You're not funny, Dad. We know you. You're not cool. Um, and, you know, with, with God's help, I try to be the same man up here that I am down there. But I, I know I fail regularly. This preacher, this preacher never fails. Jesus never fails. Now, I I want you, this is, if you don't hear anything else today, I want you to zero in. Give me your attention for this. The Jesus preaching this sermon that sometimes might seem scary and harsh is the same Jesus that we saw last Sunday. Do you remember what we saw Jesus doing last Sunday? If you need a reminder, go to chapter 4, verse 24, where it says, His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he what? Stiff-armed them, pushed them away, said, you're too messy for me, you're too dirty for me, you're too broken for me. No. He healed them. He healed them. That's the Jesus preaching this sermon. The same Jesus. He doesn't recoil or or stiff arm the messiest, sickest, most unclean people there are. He leans into them. And you know what else he doesn't do? He doesn't look at five diseased people in front of him and say, well, you, you three are really sick, but you're not that bad off. You go home. Take care of it yourself. No, he heals all of them. 
Jesus is effectively banishing disease and demon possession from Palestine. Why? Because he loves sick, broken, needy, sinful people. Now, I'm afraid we sometimes think that the Jesus that exists for us now is different from the Jesus that existed for them then. Now we have a serious, stern, stiff Jesus. Now we have a Jesus that pushes away the sick, the sinful, and the ashamed. As we spend the next few months studying this sermon, I want to challenge you to fight to remember that this Jesus never changes. And you have the same Jesus now that they had then. I think it's interesting that Matthew brackets this sermon with two stories of leaning in to sick, weary, broken, sinful people. I already read you 424. Go to chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, so Matthew's giving us the impression this is right after the sermon is over. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will. I want to heal you, he's saying. Be clean. And he immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Brother, sister, friend, if you come to Jesus humbly, seeking his cleansing touch, he will make you clean. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, do you see in this sermon just a glimpse, and you'll see it more in the weeks ahead, how much you fall short? You can't do this. It is a mirror in that sense. It shows you what you cannot do. Come to the one who can make you clean. Repent and believe today. Trust him today. Christian in this room, have you failed to live differently as Christ has called you? Do you often fall short of even this manifesto for Christian living? Do you? Come to Jesus and ask him to make you clean. For you, Christian, it's the cleansing of confession and rest, a restored relationship with Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to the unbeliever in this room, it's coming, crying out to him and asking him to save you. Here's what I love about that story of the leper. In that day, to touch an unclean leper made the clean person unclean. But when Jesus touches an unclean leper, it doesn't make Jesus unclean. It makes the leper clean. And that's what he does for all who cry out to him humbly in faith and ask him for cleansing. Pray that you do that today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your cleansing touch, your cleansing love, your cleansing blood. Jesus, that you would die the death that we deserve to die and rise from the dead, that you would give us your spirit to obey your word. Help us as your people to follow you joyfully, trust you fully, and where we fall short, help us to be quick to confess in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing together?